One thing we see in the Sermon on the Mount is we definitely see a shift from the Old Testament mindset that was really centered on works righteousness, uh, attaining favor from God and favor from men in a religious system that was foundationed on the Mosaic Law. But we know and understand that it was completely misunderstood in regards to the nature of salvation and how men are to be saved. And so when Christ comes on the scene and begins teaching of a new kingdom, not the kingdom of the Jews, not the kingdom of religion or self-righteousness, but the kingdom of God, a new kingdom based on the new covenant. Uh, um, one where the law will be written on the hearts of men. And that's really what we see in the introduction to the sermon. And the sermon itself really can be uh, narrowed down to a couple themes. One is that it is the law fulfilled. We see the outworkings of the law uh, being uh, worked within the heart of man and then the fruit... uh, being produced from that law, uh, we also see that I think it is a warning of Christ for false conversion, for false faith, for deception of faith. Therefore, in studying and knowing the sermon, it can give us an assurance of our salvation. Um, what are some highlights that you're aware of in the, in the sermon itself? I mean, there, there's so many things that we can, can meditate on and dwell on. What are the, some of the highlights that you're familiar with that arise out of the Sermon on the Mount? He, he does wrap it up with that whole issue of assurance in Matthew 7, where he warns that if we practice lawlessness, then we're not his. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, probably one of the most alarming, uh, eye-opening declarations that Christ makes uh, in Matthew 7 there where he says, there will be many who will come and say what? Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. We, we did what? We, we, we worshipped you. We, we dedicated our life to you and what you did, what you're uh, promising in salvation and to do on the cross. Or what was their assurance in? Works. We did many things. In your name even. Uh, works of miracles, uh, prophesied, yeah, they prayed, um, attended church, uh, had your quiet time. We did many things. And the most alarming thing is without hesitation. It wasn't that he considered, okay, so you, you did all these things, but man, look at all these other things. Without hesitation, God declared them as workers of iniquity, and he declared that he never knew them. And these weren't men who uh, were trying to deceive Christ, I don't think. I think these were men who were deceived, who thought that they were doing everything they needed to do to gain acceptance by God. And so what they were pointing to were not necessarily bad things, and we have to make sure we understand that that in our desire to find assurance in Christ, that we're not show, throwing off the needs to serve and to work and to uh, let the deeds that God has prepared beforehand to be done from within and, and, and serving others around us. But yet, these things may be evidence of our faith. 
you may be able to examine my life. I may be able to examine your life. We may be able to examine our lives in general and find that there are some evidences. There are some, some things that are encouraging. But if those things are the assurance of my faith, I may be just like the one who says, Lord, Lord. So when you are asked the question, or even when you challenge others, how do you know you're a believer? Then we really have to pay attention to what we would say, what others would say. And if it's based on any uh, deed or performance or action, then there could be a deception. I'm not saying that there is, but there could be. So definitely one of the, the primary highlights in the sermon. I think that really from the end of Matthew 5, beginning in verse chapter 6, the rest of the passage is about deception of faith. Because he talks about when you pray, when you fast, you know, when you give. Don't do it so that it can be seen by men, but seen by who? By God alone. And so we, we can't seek the praise of men. Um, we know that um, we aren't up treasures uh, on earth where moth and rust and thieves can steal and destroy, but we're to store up treasures in heaven. And I think in the context there, that's not only referring to material wealth, but even what we value in this life in the immaterial world. And that is, I think, the praise of men. I think we store up uh, and, and are building a case before God by uh, looking for acceptance by men. We're, we're so prone to it. It's, it just comes from our natural mind that if others think that I am okay or think well of me, then certainly I'm good before the Lord, or we see it as a, a, a means of assurance. So several things we could look at in the sermon, but I really want to hone in on the Beatitudes, uh, uh, really highlighting what I think gives us more direction and more insight in how we are to pursue our goal of life, and that is to be Christ-like. And that is seeing the Beatitudes in a way that kind of, in a progressive way that leads us to, through mindsets and through actions, that calls us to one standard, and that is to be a peacemaker, so that we could be deemed the Son of God. In in verse 9 it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Um, When we look at the Beatitudes and how it's fleshed out, we know that it deals with, I've got it up there, there's not really any uh, technical or formal sense in which the Beatitudes are laid out, like in a Hebrew or Hebraic uh, prose or poem. But I think there's some patterns you can look at that can kind of lead us to some strong exhortations and conclusions that really can help us be more effective of examining our own lives and seeing are we, first of all, genuine in our faith, are we growing in our faith, and are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Uh, that is the goal of our faith. When you look at Romans 5, um, we can kind of see some um, 
connections to the Beatitudes and what Paul teaches here, that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And basically this is a... Uh, the impact of the blessedness, the the Beatitudes, uh, which speaks of the happiness that we have in life, peace, contentment, joy, uh, really is centered around the result of the gospel. As Paul references here in Romans 5, he says, uh, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. There's a progression there that we're seeing that not only as we have obtained uh, peace with God through faith, Okay, a peace that is not dealing with inner tranquility or uh, quietness and calmness in our soul, but peace in what manner? Right, right, being right with God. Okay, being right with God in what sense? What was wrong with, with God or our relationship with God? Okay, we were enemies of God. We were at war with God. So this is, in a sense, we now have established a treaty with God. That's goal is peace, and that we are no longer enemies. We're no longer at war uh, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So, in the progression that we see from that work, is that we are to endure. The true believer endures, but the true believer also grows in character. Okay, we are being transformed as Romans twelve. Uh, 1 through 3 says, we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we're growing in character, as it says there, that, that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, and then character, hope. What is that hope? It says that the hope has been shed in our life through the, through the, uh, the Spirit who shed His love in our hearts. And, and so that, okay, so our hope and assurance is in nothing but Christ and the love of God Himself. And so Paul is talking about an assurance there that we all desire, right? And we find assurance and encouragement through uh, many means and many ways. And a lot of it sometimes is centered on material things and not with Christ in the heavenlies. And so we want to know that our assurance is not based on anything. And that's what the Beatitudes are dealing with. Um, As you see my structure there, um, Beatitudes, basically the the term itself is a Latin term that means blessing or happiness. And, And so it's dealing with heart attitudes and as we go through the, the passage, it is a progressive nature of redemption. Okay, it's not, the, the, the message itself is not for the unbeliever to then be, be taught and, under, and, and to understand how one is to be saved. This is not another law that, God, that Christ is laying out that we're to follow as the, 
Israelites took the Mosaic law. But it's only one that can be understood by the true believer. As we dwell now in the kingdom of heaven that, that has yet to be established. So we know that the promise of God in Philippians 1.6 is God uh, began the great work in us uh, unto what? So his promise is in redemption is not just the initial work of justification, but it is the progressive work of redemption all the way until the day of the Lord until we are perfect. And we know that in Romans eight twenty nine through 30 that we are being conformed to the image of the Son by his will through providential circumstances in our life, the challenges that we face, uh, that we are not to be blinded by the things of this world and what the world has to offer. That even as believers, we, we're looking to some hope in our Christian life that is not tethered or anchored to the realities of eternity. We're looking for uh, uh, credibility, uh, for assurance, for uh, reputation, for status... Uh, even in the church, we're prone to this. That we come on Sunday morning in efforts to impress, to be encouraged, maybe by the message that's being taught or even by the encouragement we gain from others. But if that's our sole source of, of blessing, then we have possibly misunderstood the work of redemption. Uh, I love what Christ prays in John 17. I always reference this if you... Um, often I reference this if you've heard me teach. But as he's praying for his disciples before his departure, he's just informed them that he will be arrested and he will be slain. And in their defiance of that reality and in their desperation... Um, Christ is praying that the Lord would keep them. Now, he says, since I have been with them, I have kept them. But now that I am leaving, then he is praying the, the Father to keep them. And he clarifies that in verse 15, um, saying, I do not ask you, referencing his prayer to God the Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What does he mean by, first of all, it's interesting that he has to clarify with the Father what he's intending in his prayers. Obviously, we know God understands uh, the, the motivations of our hearts, but clearly he's so connected with Christ that they're, they are one in spirit and nature even in his prayer. So why did Christ pray this? We see at the beginning of 17 that this was a public prayer that he spoke out in the, for his followers to hear, primarily the disciples. So he clearly meant for them to hear that. But why is it that it was important that they hear that he's not asking that they be taken from this world? 
obesity and they face all these temptations, that that's the source of a lot of their growth, what they're saying, the progressive sanctification, because if, you know, if they zapped them as soon as they got justified, they wouldn't have the growth in the right. Yeah, so clearly they want to be spared from the, the things in which they would suffer. But the other thing I think also is that do we understand that, that our goal, uh, the goal of our faith and that which we obtain in our relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with this material world. It has everything to do with the world to come. And that our ultimate salvation is out of this world. And, and for one thing, we know that we will be kept ultimately there. And so Christ is praying, Lord, Father, keep them. But in doing so, don't remove them from the world yet, anyway. Because that is our ultimate goal. And, and our mind should be distracted by those realities of eternity. In fact... In, in several places, in First John 3, it talks about that we don't know what we will be, but we know that we will be like Him because we'll see Him just as He is. And those who hope in these things will purify themselves. That one motivation to obedience is the fact that Christ is returning. And if we dwell upon that reality, then we are living in the kingdom of heaven. And that we have a hope that rests in that assurance and not in anything here. We, we live uh, from one hope to the next in this life, and especially the unbelieving world, um, which I think is we see produced in the mindset of, thank God it's Friday. You know, Friday is a unique day in our uh, social structure because of why? Why do we thank God for Friday? It's the end of the week, which means what? what what's, what are we looking forward to? Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> right? Saturday morning bowl of cereal, cartoons, you know. Well, that, that does progress now, to, now that fall's coming up. College football's coming up. Uh, and then Sunday NFL. So... But yes, those things that, that somehow in the midst of a trial or a struggle, when we think about that something we're looking forward to, kind of gives us the mindset or the strength to endure, right? Uh, and that's why we have Manic Monday, Hump Day, Wednesday. Now it's all kind of easy getting, getting to the weekend. And, and so, but this is how we're wired. It's how we're structured. Um, so when we find ourselves in times of peace, in times of joy, in times of happiness, centered on the material world, everything's fine, right? Um, but yet when, not if, but when those crises come, those struggles come, because we live in a sin-cursed world, where is it that our hope and our salvation lies? Are we dealing with, I heard a preacher one time um, teach on this in regards to the source of our happinesses and our where do we find true happiness in life and it's and it's everyone's goal to be happy right whether in the moment or setting up and preparing for things that you know you will enjoy uh, as you as you think and plan your life 
But happiness, in a sense, uh, comes from a form of the word circumstance that, that was pronounced happenstance. There's some Latin connection there. I don't remember exactly. But it really is geared based on circumstances. That our happiness is basically determined by circumstances. And in most cases, those circumstances are completely out of our control. Therefore, we are prone to be dissatisfied and to be unhappy and to be uh, discontent. But Christ is introducing a new kingdom, a new mindset. Okay, it's not built on the outward work, workings of the law in our life to gain favor with God and then receive the blessings of God. It is built on really a, a life that is impossible to attain to. And that is in the nature that it is a, a working uh, and transformation in the inner man and not the outer man where happiness is found, where transformation is, is discovered and redemption is accomplished in the inner man. And so then we have to think, well, what, what am I to do then? What control do I have of that? And, and clearly we, we see the emphasis on faith. We see the emphasis on the Spirit-filled life. We look at the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, that says that uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all uh, attitudes in which we attain to. Ephesians uh, or Colossians 3 uh, talks about having the mind of Christ. Um, I'm going to turn there real quick just to... You don't have to. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. A parallel passage to that is in um, Ephesians uh, 4 in regards to being filled with the Spirit. That when we let these attitudes and these this Spirit-filled nature uh, possess us and guide us and control us, uh, that of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, a compassionate heart, having the mind of Christ, having the peace of Christ, and, and dwelling on, as it says um, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. It's speaking of a mind and a heart that's guided by the Spirit of God and by faith. Uh, that we know we're being transformed and that that is a progressive work uh, and begins with the heart and the attitudes that ultimately leads us, as John was sharing earlier, to perfection, which is Christ-likeness, until the day that He comes and returns or He calls us home. Because in that day we will be made perfect and our salvation will be complete because it has not been completed 
it's uh, it's been accomplished, but yet has not been ultimately completed. So if our goal is to be Christ-like, I think what we can take from the Beatitudes here is that our goal... Okay, let me kind of lay out my diagram here as a teacher. Uh, I think when we look at the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12, we see these uh, verses that hone in on the inner character, such as poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. And then we have merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. And even then, I think that, that these three really are targeting more of the state of the mind and thoughts towards ourself when we are being confronted with the gospel. So we have a Romans um, 1, 16, 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe the Jew first and the Greek, for in it, what's revealed? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, that is the source of the power. It is, it is being exposed to what we have been blinded from, and that is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God that changes our mind and thoughts towards Him because we see Him in His holiness, which then changes our thoughts and mind towards ourselves. And the response is we are poor in spirit. We mourn. Uh, We uh, are meek. And in this, we see as a result of this inner working, which can be described as simply the humility of the mind and heart before God, that we no longer look up to men, we no longer look up to ourselves, we look up to God. And we don't think of ourselves at all. For we're, we're, we're nothing. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but it leads to this, what I think is verse 6, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now that we've gotten a taste of this righteousness and, and a righteousness that leads to salvation, we then will naturally grow in hunger. So if you're struggling with seeking the Lord in His Word and in prayer and and desiring for righteousness, then it could reflect the attitudes that are antithesis to what Christ is presenting here. Poor in spirit, mourn, meeking, or being meek. Um, So we hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and, and we'll be satisfied. So this newfound view of God and self drives us to be filled to long for and rest in God's provision of righteousness that leads to salvation. Um, And then we see this resulting in what I think is the next set of Beatitudes that are still dealing with heart attitudes, but are attitudes that are going to produce fruit and produce action. Okay, And that is, first and foremost, mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. So, as I have here, I think that there's a progressive work that as we are humbled by the gospel to recognize our poverty, the sorrow that we have before God, our meekness leads to a hunger for righteousness. And a result of that then 
changes us, it transforms us in the inner man to be merciful, to be pure in heart. And these are Christ-like attributes and, and, and can touch every uh, characteristic of Christ that we can, can think about in mercy and pure in heart, which I think leads us to the ultimate Christ-like, not only attitude, but, but the outworking is that we are peacemakers in this world. So what I want to do the rest of our time this morning uh, is touch on each one of these, poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and then get into mercy, uh, pure in heart, and then spend most of our time thinking about what it means to be a peacemaker, a peacemaker in your family, a peacemaker in the church, a peacemaker in the world. And I think from that, we will, will have the desire and supernatural ability to accomplish what God desires to accomplish in our life as disciples, as disciplers, as evangelists, um, as ministers, as counselors. If we adapt these attitudes that are born from the Spirit of God, it ultimately leads to the assurance that we are sons of God. And, and how does that flesh out? Well, we are peacemakers in the world. So I want to look at that uh, emphatically next week primarily. And, and when we think about this, this interaction between the blesseds and the attitude and then the, the, the response or result, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they shall be comforted, for they shall inherit the earth, Receive mercy, see God, be called sons of God. Those are definitely primary to the passage, but not necessarily linked with one another. I think, in general, those are just statements of assurance. Those are just, uh, Christ is emphatic to say that it's in these things that you won't be found saying, Lord, we did this and we did this, we did this. But he's saying, look, if, if, if the salvation that I bring and the kingdom is is in the heart and the humility resulting in the transformation of the inner man, then you can be assured that yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will receive mercy. You shall see God and you shall be called son of God. Now, I think you could um, bring uh, some kind of logic into the connection. Obviously, Mercy shall receive mercy. Um, those who mourn will be comforted. Uh, those who are pure in heart shall see God because we have a clear conscience as we worship. Um, but I do think in general those are just statements of assurance because we could spend you know days trying to, to study and relate those to one another and it would be productive but, but, but not for our time because I really want to go on to what it means to be a peacemaker. So let's look at the first, what it means to be poor in spirit. <clears throat> any thoughts, questions? Again, I'm not claiming any uh, license to that diagram. That is really just from my thinking. It may I may have convoluted the passage in your mind and confused you, but... 
but I really think it's it's an approach that has encouraged me personally, and and I've had the privilege, been meeting with several for 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 a few years now, and we've been studying this the Sermon on the Mount for uh, a long time, and this is kind of what we've enjoyed, in in trying to bring forth the implications and the application in our life, but I think. One thing that we can, for, for personal implication and application in your life, is just think, what is it that makes you happy? Are you day-to-day consistently happy? You know, are you uh, able to overcome discouraging situations and circumstances and experience complete satisfaction in your life? Um, or are you... You know, along with most of us on the roller coaster of the ebbs and flows and the challenges that we face of one day. I mean, how, how often do you find things going your way and, and really you look at every kind of area of your life and you think, man, things are really clicking now. And you feel closest to God in that time. That, that, that you take that opportunity to kind of to think that, man, I'm really doing well with God. And you're encouraged to be in the Word and you're praying, um, and then all of a sudden something changes. There's a disappointment, discouragement. Somebody yanks the rug out from under your feet in a, in a circumstance. What happens to that sense of relationship with God now? So is your relationship with God dependent upon your circumstances or vice versa? Are we seeing our circumstances through the quality of, 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 and the sense of our relationship with, with God. Because what we're seeing here is that despite circumstances, despite the struggles of life, that there is a hope and assurance that should bring lasting, um, stable uh, satisfaction, joy, peace that cannot be affected by circumstances because it is preserved in a life beyond but it's not of this world and so this is the attitude that we're looking at and this is the nature if we are to be called sons of God if we are to be peacemakers this is what ought to be true of us that we find happiness not in this world not in the material things not even when the times are good and we can can rightly thank God and attribute God to the good things, but what about the bad when the bad comes? We know that, that life is hard. It's a constant battle, day to day. We, we deal with, with our sin that has consequences. We deal with the sin of others that has consequences. Um. It's an absurd statement, but I often say, I, if we could just remove all the people, then we would be free of problems. But that obviously would lead to more misery because um, we need one another. Uh, the, Adam had that, that opportunity, right? He had no people, but the Lord saw it fitting that he give him a helper. But where did that lead to? So, <laughs> so anyway... I digress. So we know that, that life is not what God intended. And, and we know that the struggles we face are not 
uh, a result of anything but the curse of sin, our own rebellion, sin in the world. And, and now we live in a world that's, that, that, that Satan has dominion over. So he himself is coming against us and uh, threatening uh, and influencing us in what we know and what we believe so that we are weak in our faith. And so even then, we face really a, a just a, a daunting task to try to be happy in this world, but it, it does not lie in the material things. But even as believers, we're, we're prone to that. So where does the, the blessing of life lie? Where does happiness come from? Uh, Christ says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, so the first step towards having right thinking and the right mind uh, which is one of humility, is having the right knowledge of ourself. A person who is poor in spirit uh, has the right attitude about his sin. But beyond that, as we, we talked about in Romans 1, he has also the right view and attitude about God and about Christ. Uh, so Jesus here, of course, is not speaking about physical and material poverty, but of spiritual poverty. But we get clearer or more uh, insight in relating it to true physical poverty because it, it gives us understanding of our spiritual condition. So the word itself uh, in the Greek that's translated poor here, among others, really speaks of one who is a beggar or one who is cowering like a beggar. And it is someone who is desperate. And why does a beggar cower when he begs? Because he's ashamed. He, he really doesn't want to be seen even that he is in that desperate condition. So we're not talking about someone that, that you may run into periodically every now and then. We do at the church for benevolence. People who are in a condition of maybe low income. Uh, they are receiving some income but just aren't able to make ends meet month to month, week to week. But we're talking about someone who is penniless, who has no resources at all. Someone who is dependent solely on the mercy of others on the streets begging, and anything that they have is because someone had sympathy for them. Um, I know that it may conjure up uh, in your mind those we might see on exit ramps or on the streets. I know Jeff and a few men go down to downtown Atlanta consistently every week, and they encounter these men that are desperate. And we may question their motives. We may challenge their motivations. Are they really desperate? You know, and that's really not for us to judge. But the idea here is spiritually we are beggars. We have nothing to offer. But when we come this way before the Lord, begging and cowering, uh, it brings happiness. We're humbled by our spiritual circumstances. We are humbled by the desperation. We are empty. We're poor. We're helpless. 
we have nothing of redemptive value that we can bring to the Lord or anything that we can bring to purchase our way to heaven and our favor uh, before God. So we're totally dependent upon the sympathy of God that if He were not to be sympathetic towards us, then none of us would have hope. Uh, And this is whom the Lord blesses. He doesn't care about the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, the ones who claim. Um, Look at me with uh, Luke 18. We see a perfect illustration of this. Chapter 18, verse 18, we know this is the rich young ruler. And it says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And what does he say? Oh, I've got that down. I mean, I'm good there. If that's all it takes, then I am good to go. So I always wonder, okay, so if he was confident in knowing that he had kept the law perfectly, then why did he ask the question? What was he looking for from Christ? What did he want Christ to say? You got it, man. Why are you asking me? Of all people, based on how you've lived your life from your perspective, <laughs> you're good to go. And so it just speaks to our own depravity of how, how quickly we can pat ourselves on the back and, and misjudge ourselves in our pride. But this is the state of this man's heart and he says, all, I have, uh, all these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard this, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So not only was he not willing to, and then it says he, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Um, His condemnation wasn't because he was rich in material things. His condemnation was that he declared himself rich in spiritual things. He was not willing to confess his poverty spiritually and therefore unwilling to renounce his wealth materially when he could have had that assurance that he was looking for. Christ gave him the answer he was looking for. And that is, if you just let go of your wealth, sell it to poor, and commit your life to me, then you've got what you're looking for. But it wasn't what he wanted. He wasn't willing to confess and be humbled before Christ and before God, and therefore condemned himself because of his self-righteousness, his self-sufficiency. Um. So definitely as we look at the many ways that we can reflect humility through um, 
the acknowledgement of our spiritual destitution, uh, there's a couple ways we can examine this in our own life. Many things we could observe and many things that would reflect this, but three things that I want to point to you by implication is first and foremost, examining your prayer life. Okay, we are spiritual beggars. And beggars are always what? They're begging. So if we see ourselves in this light, poor in spirit, is it reflected in our prayer life and our need for the Lord? And I'm not talking about something you can measure and and say, I do this every morning and I do this every night. Is this the attitude of your heart constantly? We are to pray without ceasing. We're to have a mindset of a dependence and need for God that should always be reflected in our thoughts of God continually and our need for Him. And that in in, in every situation, every occasion, reflecting that dependence in our poverty by begging for God to give me the grace that I need. And a beggar will not stop begging until his needs are met, right? Um, and for us, our needs are never met till we come before Him uh, in perfect glory, but yet His grace sustains us. Uh, secondly, you will reflect this attitude by never complaining. You have no cause to complain. Philippians 2, 12 through 14, we'll wrap it up here says that we're to work out our salvation, right, with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in us to do His will in our lives. And He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So if you want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and it goes on talking about it, and you want to be a light in the world, which, which connects us to the peacemakers, then don't do what Israel did in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and complain and grumble and dispute all the time. Stop your complaining. You have nothing to complain about if you believe in what you have in your salvation. And that is the hope of glory. So there's no circumstance in life that would cause you the need to doubt and complain because it's just a reflection of a lack of trust and and a low view of God and a high view of, of what you think you deserve in life. So stop Complaining. And here I say, beggars cannot be choosers, right? Beggars cannot be choosers. So we are accepting and we're thankful. And that's the third thing. Always being thankful. You want to combat uh, a complaining spirit? Then be thankful. In all things at all times. Not in circumstances. Not in material things. Be thankful always. Because of what God has accomplished through His salvation. What we have, we have received by the sympathy and grace and mercy of God. So that's the first one we'll touch on, poor in spirit. Uh, Then I want to walk through mourning and meekness, merciful, pure in heart. And then we'll kind of wrap it up with peacemakers. So next week, 9.15, let's jump on because we've got a lot to get through. But I want to spend some time on what it means to be a peacemaker. So any thoughts, questions, complaints? <laughs> See, I, that's why I, now's a good time to fill out a comment card on, because nothing to complain about, right? 
Let me pray for us.